Well, morning. If you will, turn with me to Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus 23, 20, uh, 32, 33, and 34. I see the children are leaving. If you have children, there's going to be some children workers in the back. Exodus chapter 32. We're almost done with Exodus. Just two more weeks. I pray that it has been encouraging to you as it has been to me. Who is God? It's a, it's a really easy question to ask, isn't it? But it's a really hard question to answer. I think one of the things that our, uh, that our culture, our society prizes as being American is that government cannot answer that question for us, right? We have individual autonomy to answer the question of who is God for ourselves. Like no, no government, no outside threat can demand that we Worship this God or that God. The, the individual gets to decide who God is for themselves. Which makes our society pluralistic, right? Like all religions in one sense have equal access in the sense that every person can decide for themselves to answer the question, who is God for themselves? And so this morning as I asked the question of who is God, I'm not asking everyone. I'm, I'm asking people in particular. I'm asking us. Who is God? Like when you think about God, and I'm assuming here today that, that when, we, when I ask that question of who God is, there's a sort of mental picture that you have. There's, there's sort of words, characteristics. There's, there are synonyms that come to your mind as it relates to who God is. So, so what comes to your mind what comes to your mind when I ask, who is God? What sort of free associations, what sort of images come to your mind? Do, do, do you think of maybe an absent father? Do you think of a, uh, a disciplinarian, right? That, that whole idea of God is a, a sort of ethical nitpicker. God is cruel, or maybe you think of Santa Claus, right? God is the, the Santa Claus in the sky, and he's got two lists, the naughty and nice list, and you just hope that you're on the nice list. Or, or maybe God's just a, a sort of life coach, right? He's positive. He's encouraging. He, he wants you to get in touch with your inner you. If we all, if I give out a, a paper and pen to all of you and I said, okay, uh, throw some words out to how you would describe God. What, what sort of words would you use? If you were to write uh, a description of God in your personal dictionary, how would you describe God? Well, whatever kind of words and images come to your mind when I ask the question, who God is? This morning, amid a backdrop of failure with God's people, for God's people, God reveals who he is at his core, at his essence. God displays, this is who I am at my core. So my assumption, this is, 
my assumption this morning for us all is that we all have those sort of default, intuitive ideas about who God is. And this morning, I just want to put them aside for a moment as we discover God's revealed answer to the question of who he is. So the big idea of these three chapters is behind me. And it's simply this. You can write it down for those note takers. And you're going to see that we're going to kind of work through this text in three parts. God's idolatrous people through a prayerful intercessor are renewed as a display of his glory, as a display of his glory. So if you remember from last week, we left off in chapter 21 and Moses is up on the mountain and God speaks to him and God kind of gives a blueprint to Moses to then how they can build his house where God is going to literally dwell with his people in this house. God tells him, this is exactly how I want you to build my house. And he's up on the mountain, Moses and God. And we start off in uh, 32 in sort of like, think about a cinematic kind of like rewind. All right. Like while Moses is up on the mountain, what in the world is going on down at the foot of the mountain where God's people are gathering? That's what happens in uh, chapter 32. We have a rewind. Meanwhile, back at the foot of the mountain, this is what's going on with God's people. So look at it starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, let my wrath, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now, skip down to verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing that was written of God engraven on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he said to Moses, this is the noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw that the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burnt hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. 
He stood, he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and grounded it to, the, to powder and scattered it on water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not uh, the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said, let anyone who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in a fire and out popped out a calf. And, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro to the gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and the, days, and the day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son or, uh, son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. We'll stop there. So let me just kind of summarize this section, right? We're going to see that, that the narrative kind of breaks down in three acts. This is act one, the fall of Israel. Moses is up on the mountain and he's taking too long, Right? And so the people think, okay, we don't know what's going on. Time's a ticking. You're taking too long. And so they take things into their own hands. And so they go to Aaron, verse 1, and they say, all right, Aaron, we want you to make us some gods. Right? They ask for Aaron to make gods that, that shall go before them. And in response, Aaron says, okay, I'm going to do that. He says, take off your gold jewelry and he get, he takes it he he throws it in the fire melts it down and he builds he fashions it it says he has a fashioning tool right right you were supposed to laugh at that section right right he fashions it into this calf and then Aaron announces that this is the god of Israel who brought you out of Egypt verse 5 he builds an altar they make sacrifices to this god and then verse 6 it says the people sat down to eat drink and rose up to play in other words, they ate too much, they drank too much, and this whole idea, they rose up to play, well, it's a, a nice, polite way to say they were engaging in lots of sex. So, so you could think of this sort of like a, a hippie holiday, right? Free drink, free food, free sex. But nothing's free, is it, right? Everything has got a cost, and we see that cost in verse 7, right? God is hot, angry. Now, why? Why is God so angry? Well, it's not just that God's people are worshiping a false God. I mean, that's bad enough, but it's not just that. And it's not just that God's people are worshiping, you know, through an idol. Like, it's not just that they're, they're worshiping the wrong God, but they're worshiping the wrong God in the wrong way. That's also bad, right? That's the breaking of the first commandment and the second commandment. That's bad, but it's even worse than that. If you remember, Aaron says, okay, bring me your jewelry, which that jewelry was a gift that God gave to his people. 
And he says, give me those gifts that God himself gave you. And let me take them. Let me melt it down. Let me then give it to another God so that you can be unified to that other God. So let me just kind of put this maybe in more contemporary language, right? So just imagine. Uh, Imagine a wife during Christmas saves up and up and up so that she can buy her husband a really expensive watch. And so she buys it and she gives it to her husband and her husband goes, I love it. I'll cherish it for the rest of my life. But a few days later, he takes the watch, this husband, he goes to a pawn shop, he sells it. He then uses that money to get a fancy hotel room at the Post Hotel in Leavenworth. If you don't know, that's like a very fancy hotel. And then he meets up with another woman to have an affair. That's the idea going on here. That's what's going on. God's people have have been, in one sense, married to one another. That's what the Mosaic Covenant is. It's like a, a marriage vows. And here God's people take a gift that God gives him and they give it to another God. It's not just a breaking of God's covenant. It's doing so in the most cruel and calloused way. So God then speaks, verse 7, to Moses, right? And he says, Moses, you're up here, right? It, it, it takes a few days to get up to the mountain. So Moses has no idea what's going on. And he goes, I'm going to let you in on the secret. It's not going great down there. And he kind of shares everything that's going on. But notice verse 7. He says, your people. Early on in chapter 19, God said, these are going to be my people. And now God is distancing himself from these people and say, Moses, go down to your people. Then in verse 8, he explains everything that's going on. And then verse 9, and I just want these words to sink in. Look at verse 9. God says, I I, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Right? They're stubborn. Therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I might consume them in order that I may then make a great nation out of you. So, verse 9, it, it's so bad. Their, their, their sin is so egregious. Their idolatry is so ugly. It's as if they cheated on God. They've broken their vows. And God is suggesting that he's now going to divorce them. But not only that, he says, in the process of this divorce, he's going to consume them, right? That, that language of consuming, this is like the language of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the language in Noah's day. God is going to consume them, and then he's going to start all over again, right? He's going to build a new people out of Moses, right? Moses is going to be like a new Abraham. God's going to start all over and build God's people up by Moses, and then through his generations. So, so, so this ends, and you might think, oh my goodness, the very covenant is at stake. The covenant is in question. Verse 15, Moses then goes up to the mountain. And as I read it, notice Moses does two things, right? He has something with the stone tablets, and he does something with the golden calf, all right? And in both occasions, what he's doing is he's doing something physical, like something pictorial in order to communicate something spiritual. 
Okay, so it's like street theater, right? He's displaying something physical in order to communicate something theological, something spiritual. So he takes the two tablets. Moses is not like angry. He's not throwing an adult temper tantrum, okay? He takes the two tablets and he breaks them. So he's, he's, he's making a sign to saying, you have broken the tablets. You've broken the covenant. And then he takes the, the golden calf, throws it back into a fire, right? He melts it down, makes it into powder. He sprinkles it in water and makes them drink it. So he's trying to communicate something, right? Think about drinking that. It would, it would make you sick. It would be bitter. It'd be gross. And he's saying, your idolatry, it should taste bitter to you. It's gross. It should make you sick. So, so, so the act of drinking this gold-laced water was, a, was physically supposed to communicate the spiritual reality that their idolatry was sickening to God. Well, Aaron's not exactly helpful in all this, is he, right? Mo- Moses is like, okay, what's going on, Aaron? What happened? And Aaron, he, he, he sort of skirts the truth, right? Right? We, we've seen children do this. I saw one of my children do this recently. Uh, you know, uh, a football hit my daughter. And I said, it's like, did you hit your, your sister? And he's like, no, the football hit my sister, right? <laughs> and that's pretty much Aaron, right? Technicality. I, I mean, I mean, these people, these evil people, what was I supposed to do? You left me alone with them. I just threw some gold in and out popped a calf, which is not exactly right. But he's sort of playing dumb in all this. And then... Moses then calls, well, is there anyone who's loyal to both God and Moses? And the sons of Levi come. And so then he tasks them to get their swords ready. They are going to judge those responsible for this idolatry. And 3,000 people die at the hands of the Levites. Now, this whole story that I read, it's act one. It's act one in a tragedy. It's all about how quickly God's people kind of fell prey to the temptation of idolatry. Now, we don't use that language all the time, right? Like, we don't have, like, golden calves or whatever. But, but idolatry is just putting anything in the place of God. Idolatry is basically the dethroning of God. It's anything or any person that you put as more important to you than God. That's idolatry. And here we see that's what, exactly what they're doing. They are putting something else in the place of God. But we're pretty far removed from this, right? And so we can't, in one sense, look at the story and go, Israel, ah, oh, you're just so stubborn. You're just so dumb. Like, I would never do that. At least that's what, that's what, that's what a gut reaction to reading these stories. You're just like, ah, I would never have done that. Well, Paul says we can't do that, okay? Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul quotes our very text. He's quoting actually Exodus 32 verse 6, but he helps us think through how we should interpret this story. So look at verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul writes, now these things took place as examples for you, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. People sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. There's our quote, right? Then if you skip down to verse 11, 
It says, now these things happened to them as examples, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Meaning, we should have some humility. Meaning, we should interpret this story not, oh, I would never do that, but, oh, I would have done that. I would have done the very thing that Israel had done. Exodus 32, as Paul says, it's an example to us, written down for our benefit so that we would not do as they did. Israel, in that sense, is a cautionary tale. And it's a tale we were meant to all relate to. And I think it's interesting that one of the things that we learned here that I think we're supposed to take away is that there's two type of idolatries going on here. Right? We can call it idolatry A and idolatry B. Right? The, the people seem to be wanting to worship other gods. We see that, right? Form for us other gods that might lead us. But Aaron's idolatry is different, right? Aaron fashions this calf, this golden calf, but he calls that golden calf God's covenantal name. So Aaron's worshiping a little bit different. He doesn't want to worship other gods. He wants to worship God in ways that God forbids. Right? Later on, this is going to happen when the, when the nation is divided and God's people start worshiping in the north on high places and God says, they're, they're still worshiping, you know, the, the, the same God. They're still calling him by the same covenantal name, but they're worshiping God in ways that God expressly forbids. So there's two types of idolatries. Worshiping other gods and then second, worshiping God in ways that God forbids. And I think that second idolatry is a, a, a very subtle and a very strong temptation for the Christian church. I think we can all relate to that. And I think if you think about it, like why is God concerned not just with worshiping other gods? We get that. Like that makes sense, right? Um, that's like cheating on God. But, but why is God concerned with how we worship him? Ever thought about that? Like, why, why is the method, why is the, the liturgy of the church, to, to use older language, why does the form of our worship matter, not just the object of our worship? Well, the Bible is very clear that not only what we worship, but how we worship matters. Because the object of our worship and the method of our worship forms us into its image. Right? If, you, if you want to see this, I can read it to you. But if you go to Psalm 135, we see this in Isaiah and other places. But Psalm 135, verse 15, I'll just read it to you. This is a reflection on our, our text. And it says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, they don't speak. Right? That's what these idols are, right? These idols have eyes, they don't see. They have ears, they don't hear. There is no breath in their, in their mouths. Now, verse 18. Those who make them and therefore worship them become like them. So do all those who trust in them. You see, see, see the principle there? Well, whatever you worship, you become like. And not only that, but the manner in which you worship, the form of your worship will also have implications on and will form you in that 
uh, in similar ways. So, so as we read, as they fall, Israel's worship is described eerily similar to the worship that was in Egypt. And we see as we go on that they're then described as Egyptian, right? Their worship and the form of their worship, which was largely Egyptian at this point or is syncretistic, well, it began to then lead to behavior that looked a lot like Egyptian behavior. So, So we could say that holy worship leads to holy behavior, unholy worship leads to unholy behavior. That's, that's, that's the principle here. So it's not just the object of our worship that we should care about. It's also the rhythm of our worship because that has the power to shape us as well. So, so if we just say, oh, it doesn't matter, we can just use creativity or we, or we just have good intentions about how we, how we worship. No, no, we, we, need to be, we need to realize that the form of our worship also forms us. So, so in the Christian church, we, we use language like this. We say, we want to be formed by God, right? God isn't just, uh, he doesn't just care that we're saved or something, but no, he's forming us as a people, right? We are formed in Christ's image and that takes uh, kind of a progressive shape that we are continually being formed by God more into his image, the image of, of Christ. And so if we want to do that, if we want to form ourselves in Christ, that means as we gather, we should then sing about Christ, we should pray in Christ's name. Right? We should preach about Christ. We should display Christ through baptism and communion, right? All of the forms of Christian worship are important because they are actually forming us into a Christian community. It's not just important what we worship. It's also important how we worship. And that's what we see here. Well, this story, is, it's an example to us. It's, it's meant to humble us. It is the low point in this tragedy. But we don't stay low for too long, right? Moses, in light of Israel's sin, is going to pray to God, right? Four intercessory prayers. Four times Moses intercedes for God's people on behalf of God's people to God. So let's look at them. Chapter 32, we'll start in verse 11. So we're going to kind of skip and I'm going to show you these intercessory prayers. So starting in verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord, his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, did you bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And this land that I have promised, I will give to you and your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then going down to verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I may go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sins, but it not, please blot me out from your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go 
Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sins upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made a calf, the one that Aaron made. Then go flip over to chapter 33. Verse 1. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart to go up from here and you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to your Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the parasites, Hittites, Jebusites, go to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up from you, up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff necked people. Now, verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see You say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to them, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us out from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct and I your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass Before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my goodness passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. No. The fourth, verse 9 of chapter 34. This is the fourth intercession. We'll start in verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head down to the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. So four times in that section, in light of God's people's Idolatry, Moses prayerfully intercedes on behalf of God's people to God. And let's look at this first one, right? God has said he's going to consume them. And Moses says, Lord, he intercedes and says, don't consume your people. And notice how he says it, right? Moses sort of gives two arguments as to why God shouldn't consume his people. He says, what is Egypt going to think, right? Right? What's, if you do that, it's going to, it's your reputation here is at stake. And then second, he says, God, you got to remember your, your covenant, right? Your promises, your promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what we see here is that this first is that Moses understands the Bible, right? And so he prays in light of it. He prays for God's reputation, right? He doesn't just say, Lord, Lord, don't consume them because that would be the nice thing to say. No, instead he says, God, don't consume them, though they deserve it. Don't consume them so that your reputation is displayed. I think this is how we should pray, right? 
Like whatever's going on, we should be rooting our prayers in this sort of theological grounding. We should say, Lord, right? There's a lot of things right now that are disunifying churches, Lord. But for the sake of our reputation in our community, right? For a sake of your glory throughout the world, for the sake of the nations, Lord, we pray that, that we could come together. Or, or Lord, there's so many things, there's so many idols, there's so many temptations, Lord. There's so many things that pull us away from you, Lord. Lord, for the sake of your reputation in our city, Lord, may we be faithful. That's his first prayer. For the sake of God's name, for the sake of his reputation, for the sake of his promises, as a display of his faithfulness, Lord, And then he makes his prayer. Well, verse 14, the Lord relents of this disaster. And then the second intercessory prayer we see. Moses, we see that in chapter 32 at the end there. Moses basically says, all right, Lord, my life for their life. Isn't that what he says, right? He says, blot me out if you would then take my life for their life. Quite the prayer. And I think in here you get a sense of Moses' heart, right? It's similar to, to Paul's heart in Romans, right? Paul prays basically um, that I myself might be accursed. If, if you would save my people, Lord, I, I would rather be cursed, damned for the sake of my kinsmen in the flesh. Now, this is hyperbole, right? It's, it's exaggeration for effect but you get Paul's heart and you get Moses' heart, right? He loves his people and says, Lord, take my life for their life. I have a sort of confession. um, Recently, it became apparent to me that I've spent more of my time uh, complaining about our city and this region than I have been Loving this city and this community. Maybe I'm not alone. Where my attitude, my heart might go towards all the things that I don't like or all the challenges. And so I get frustrated. And so instead of having the heart that Moses has, I have more of a heart of contempt for the city. I think this is, Moses is onto something. I think this is what our city needs more than anything. A heart of men and women who say, Lord, I love our city so much. I love this region so much that I would, in a true sense, I love my neighbor so much that I would, I would trade my life for their life. That's Moses' prayer, isn't it? He loves his people. Many of them are not even following God. He loves him so much regardless. He loves his neighbor so much that he could say, in good conscience, Lord, I trade my life for theirs. I want them so much to know you. I want them so much forgiven. I'll trade my life for theirs. I think one of the things we don't want as a church is to what happened in Ezekiel's day. Remember what happened in Ezekiel's day? This is during the exile And God comes to Ezekiel and says, "Um, I I looked for someone to stand in the gap for God's people. 
or for be, uh, on behalf of God's people to stand in the gap, a man or a woman, and I found none. Moses stands in the gap. Moses stands in the gap. Now, that, now we're not to be Moses, but Moses stands in the gap and intercedes on behalf of his people, on behalf of his city, on behalf of, 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 of those whom he loves and says, my life for theirs. He stands in the gap and prays. Can you just imagine a church filled with people who had that sort of heart? It's a dangerous church. That's the second intercessory prayer. The third we see in verses 12 through 18, right? Moses is, uh, is now in a tent of meeting. Now, what in the world is a tent of meeting? We see that in, at the beginning of chapter 33. I, I skipped it. Well, well, the tabernacle, the blueprints exist, but it hasn't been built. We're going to get that a bit later. And so evidently God had a sort of temporary tent outside of, of the community where God met Moses. And so God's there meeting with Moses. And so Moses learns something. They're going to go to the promised land. God's not going to consume them. They're going to the promised land. God's going to fight for them. God's even going to send an angel to lead them. But as they kind of caravan out there, God's not coming. God's not coming with them. And we see there at the end, um, or at the beginning of chapter 33, the people get it, verse 4. They figure out how disastrous this is and they begin to mourn. And Moses basically says, if you're not going, we're not going. Moses basically says, I would rather have dust in the wilderness with God than a land flowing with milk and honey without you, God. And so what we learned here is that the promised land, this promise that was dangled out before God's people as as one of the covenantal promises Fundamentally, what made it the promised land was God's presence. It, it wasn't the prosperity. It wasn't the economic flourishing. It wasn't the, 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 the political system that was going to happen. It wasn't any of that stuff. It wasn't all of the blessings and the rivers and the glorious climate. That's not what made the promised land the promised land. What made the promised land the promised land was that God was going to be there in their midst. And now God says, you can have it, but you can't have me. And Moses rightly says that we don't want, we don't want it. Which I think offers uh, an interesting thought experiment, doesn't it? An interesting thought experiment to say, if, if you could have Eden, if you could have a society of peace and harmony, if you could just, a, a utopia of your own making, but there was no God. Or if you could have a, a world that's broken and sinful and where there's injustice and pain and suffering, but there is redemption and God, which would you take? That was set before Moses and Moses said, I'll take the wilderness because at the center of of his desire was that he wanted God. That's the third intercession. Now the fourth We're going to get there in a second. But before we get there, Moses asks one more thing. We saw that in verses 17 through the end of chapter 33. Right? Moses asks to see God's glory. Now, why? Think about it. Moses' life has just fallen apart. He has lost everything, right? 
There, there was the promise of Eden, the promise of God dwelling, the promise of, of peace and security. I mean, he's up on the mountain and he's literally having his best life now. And he goes down and realizes it's all gone, right? It's all gone, right? He, the, the last chapter, chapters um, 25 to 31, that's like Genesis 1 and 2. That's Eden. And then chapter 33, that's Genesis chapter 3. It's a repeat of this whole, whole story over and over again. And so he's lost everything. And yet Moses realized that the thing that could stable him in the midst of storms, the thing that can stable him in the midst of the uncertainty of what's going to befall God's people is if God were to display his glory, which is a shorthand way of God displaying who he is at his core. And God meets him there and says, yep, I will display my glory to you. And it's interesting, he's, he, he says, I will, I will, my goodness will pass by me. That's a hint, okay? It really is a hint of who God is at his core. It says, my goodness, which is a synonym for his glory, my goodness is going to pass before you. Now, you're not going to see Moses all of my glory. You'd die if that were to happen. But I've got a, a little cave that I'm going to hide you in, and I'm going to show you a part of my glory. He says, I want you to get two tablets of stone and I want you to come up the mountain and you're going to, I'm going to display who I am at my core. Remember that question I asked at the beginning, who is God? Basically, God's saying, I'm going to tell you exactly who I am, my, my core, my essence. And we get a, a sort of spoiler about who God is at his core. When, when God says, bring two tablets of stone, we get a, we really do get a spoiler. I think at this point, Moses knows it's about to go good for God's people, right? He had broken the tablets and he says, go cut some more. Look at Act 3. We have this prayerful intercession in which God accepts. And then chapter 34, we have a display of God's glory, a display of God's name. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of the stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout the mountain. Let no flock or herd graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up to the mountain to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands two tablets of stone. The Lord descended on the cloud and stood, up, um, and stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So, Moses goes up on the mountain, he's got his two tablets of stone, and God's glory descends on the mountain. And God then displays and describes who he is at his core. Right? God, God says, this is who I am. Now, I think intuitively, maybe for this crowd, intuitively, we understand not an angry God. That sort of makes sense, Right? We understand the thunder, lightning, God's glory. That, that, that's all scary language. Like it makes sense that God would be angry at us. Which I think is why verse 6 is so arresting. 
See the first two words that God uses in the dictionary of who God is? The Lord is merciful and gracious. That's the the first two words that, that, that just kind of flow out of God's mouth, out of God's heart. He's merciful and gracious. He is then slow to anger. Literally, the the Hebrew is, he's not just slow to anger. He's long nostriled, right? God doesn't flare up his nostrils in anger quickly. It takes a long time. He is a long wick. God abounds in love and faithfulness. Keeping love for thousands of generations and forgiving iniquities, forgiving sins. Now the idea of forgiving a thousand, you know, uh, forgiving for a thousand generations, that doesn't mean when a thousand and one happens, oh, then God isn't forgiving anymore. No, no, no. A thousand is just like the idea of complete. It means like it will not be exhausted. God keeps on forgiving. It knows no end. You can't outrun it. You can't outhide it. God's forgiveness just keeps on coming. And then in closing, it says, the last description is that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the fourth generation, right? God, God's not a softy. He is the only perfectly just and fair person in the universe. And so sin and guilt and shame will flow down the generations. But notice the contrast. Sin goes to the fourth generation, love to, and forgiveness to the thousandth. That's the trade. There's a contrast going on to display kind of the the weight of God's characteristics. And I think the Puritans were actually really helpful. The the Puritans talked about God's God's natural character and his strange character. God's natural character is his love, his grace, his mercy. That's what comes most natural to God. God's strange or alien attributes are his justice. And that's what we see here. God delights to show his love. He delights to show his mercy. He delights to forgive. That is who God is. And so God displays that character. God displays his glory to Moses and basically says, to the stiff neck, God says, I'm merciful. To the obstinate, the stubborn, God says he's gracious. To the infuriating, God says he's slow to anger. To the selfish, God says I'm faithful. To the faithless, God says I am constant and consistent. To the sinner, God says I am a forgiving God. To the lawbreaker, God says I am just. That's who God is. That is who God displays to Moses. And you see, that is why verse 9, he can then say, Lord, Please forgive us. Take us back as your inheritance. And then what we see in verses 10, and we're not going to, I'm just going to reference it. Verse 10 to verse 28, the covenant is renewed, right? That's exactly like the the covenant that we read in verses uh, 20 through 24, right? It's basically all here in in a paraphrased version, right? The the, the covenant actually ends with... um, with you shall not boil a young goat in your mother's milk in chapter 24 and look in verse 26. It ends that same way, right? This is just shorthand for saying the covenant is back on. You're still my people. You're still my my inheritance. 
I've forgiven you. That's who God is. And when Moses comes down the mountain, verse 29 through 34, his face shines. When you meet God for who he truly is, when you meet the God who is slow to anger, who forgives, who is gracious and merciful, it changes you. You begin to be glorious. That's what happened to Moses. Now, let me just bring it full circle and we're going to be done. All these sorts of themes, the themes of Eden restored and the tabernacle and idolatry and glory and grace and truth, all of those themes that we talked about, they actually are quoted and woven together in four verses in the Gospel of John. Go to John 1. John 1, verse 14. You know this. This is the Christmas story, right? Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh, that's Jesus Christ, and he tabernacled. He dwelt among us. And then it says, we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of, here's another quote from Exodus 34, 6, full of grace and truth. So if you want to see what God's, if you want to see truly God's glory, You don't need to just look at Exodus 34. You want to see it on its fullest display, grace and truth and God's glory. You see it in Jesus Christ. And particularly if you want to see where truth and grace, where God's mercy and justice, where the glory of God is most magnified and displayed, you see it on the cross, don't you? You see it as he's forgiving sinners. That's where God displays his glory greatest. It's in the forgiveness of sinners It's not in his demanding of justice. It's when his justice is satisfied in and through Jesus Christ as he forgives sinners. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. We have never seen God. Even Moses is hidden. But in Jesus, through faith, we have seen the very glory of God. That is where God's glory is most displayed, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this glory, it has a purpose. This glory has a purpose just as it had a purpose in Moses' life. When you experience God's glory in Christ Jesus, when you experience his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, when you experience it, changes you. This is what Paul writes. But we all with unveiled faces, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from the same image from glory to glory. We are being transformed from glory to glory. When you meet glory, when you meditate on glory, when you experience glory, when you savor God's glory, you become more and more glorious. That's what Paul writes. So, who is God? My guess is we all have a mental picture. We all have an assumption of who God is. Maybe it's even based on our experience based on our, maybe our dad or our parents or based on the rules in their home, whatever it is. Does that mental image, do the words that come to your, to your mind when you answer the question, who is God? Is it in accordance 
with Exodus 34? Is it in accordance with God who, who displays his glory in the forgiving of sinners? That's who God is. That's who we worship. That's why we worship God. So if you want to be transformed more in Christ's image from one degree of glory to the next, this is the last thing I'll say. Just meditate on Savior, Savior Jesus Christ. Be in his presence, experience him. And as you do, you will look more like him.